May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? That's a question that is asked to Jesus point blank. But as a question, I think it's important for us to have, have a lot. And it's a challenging question in, in this season. We have, uh, my family and I moved to, to a new house, as I, I shared. We're in a, a new neighborhood, and it's, it's hard to meet the neighbors. Um, we can't, like, knock on a door and say, Hi, how are you? We just moved in. I guess we, we could, but it's just, you don't know the dynamics of, of people you don't know and, and what they're going to do and how they're going to respond and how to be in that situation. I've been able to meet a number of you in the, in the Bee Creek community, but I haven't been able to meet all of you. We weren't able to have like a big blowout um, reception after our first Sunday. It was, it was a quick in and out. And it's been nice ha seeing people at Evensong on Sunday nights. And it's been really nice in the shade um, with the breeze from the lake coming in and, and greeting people and saying hi from a distance and kind of making those connections that are so hard online. But it is still, it's not, it's not sufficient. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? We use neighbor in a lot of different ways. We have this great cultural impression of, of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And could you be mine? Would you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Like that, that connection for at least my generation growing up was a major connection of, of what it meant to be a neighbor. We have the, the people next door to us. When I was still a kid, we would, we would knock on the door and ask for a cup of sugar and, or two eggs if, if we were just close to our recipe. It seems like a crazy thing for today to do, but there was, it was a common, common enough occurrence of, of connecting as neighborhoods. I remember growing up, my parents had a, a caroling party which was the biggest event for, for neighbors of people came together and drank some, some adult eggnog. I had some kid eggnog and we went in and, and we caroled along the neighborhood. My, my neighborhood growing up, there was a number of boys my age all along the block. And so we would kind of all spontaneously meet at different times. We never called each other. We would meet, meet, meet up and play and use our imagination and play football and baseball and other games. And that was part of being the neighborhood. Who is my neighbor? My brothers and sisters, we are finishing our, our series on mapping the future here at Bee Creek. We've, we've started by trying to look at the map of our area in a new way, thinking about how we can make, make our own new map in this time. As well, what we can do in this season and how God is asking us to live a full life now and not just put off everything until there's a vaccine or until there's like some unknown future, but to act faithfully in the present, to respond to needs safely in the present. And today we are talking about loving our neighbors in this new map. There's a spatial reality to a neighbor. A neighbor is someone close, and so that means you have to be aware that we have bodies and we live in space, that we occupy space and other people occupy space. A neighbor is not just an intellectual or a spiritual idea, it's a concrete reality. A neighbor is a person 
with us in this world, neighbors or people around us in this world. Our scripture for today comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to read a, a good chunk of this. It's starting with verse 25. It starts, as a lot of things start, with, with a lawyer. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This was a really smart lawyer. He knew, he knew the Shema. He knew um, the, the neighbor commandment from, from Leviticus. It was a really bright lawyer. And then he had this follow-up. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. This is what Jesus says. And so now the lawyer. But desiring to justify himself, the lawyer said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? That is our question, my brothers and sisters. Who is my neighbor? And who is our, my neighbor right now? And who is my neighbor in the new map of the kingdom of God that is offered before us? Who is my neighbor? So then Jesus replies with this incredibly famous story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw the man, he had compassion and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these threes do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then the lawyer, who was a bright lawyer, a good listener, said, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is God's word for us, my brothers and sisters. The parable of the good Samaritan. It's a wonder wonderful story. I mean, but it has a few words that are sometimes kind of tricky without the biblical context. What is a Samaritan? Well, Sometimes we hear about Samaritans, that they're kind of like they're oppressed or they're others and other kinds of ideas. The Samaritans were kind of like cousins to the Jews. They weren't, they weren't different of a different race. They weren't of a different ethnicity. They were basically like, um, you know, like Protestants and Catholics in a way. And that the, the Jews of Jesus's people uh, believed in the, the centrality of the temple and the, the cult of the temple and the sacrifices of the temple. And, and the Samaritans believed that there were high places that God could also be worshiped at throughout the countryside. Needless to say that most of the Jews lived near the temple and most Samaritans lived far away from the temple. It's like there's a sect of, of brethren in, in Pennsylvania that one, one group was that you had to be baptized in moving water, and the other group said that you could be baptized in still water. And one group lived by a river, and the other group lived 10 miles from a river. And so there's these contexts 
um, which, which matter and impact the lived lives of people. But, but so, so Samaritans didn't, they weren't like randomly other people. They weren't a, a radically different people who looked radically different, who acted radically different. They were seen as unclean because they did not participate in the sacrifices of the temple. The second term that comes up is the priest and the Levite. And the priests and the Levites were two different groups that participated in the cult of the temple directly. And so um, the priests had, had the official job in the temple of, of making the sacrifices, and the Levites were of the people who were connected to the temple. They both had specific jobs related to the temple. Now the road as well, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is, is a steep road, a kind of a winding road down, but it's not too far. Jericho and Jerusalem are not that far. So they could, it could be made in a day's journey, and there could be people who walked that road regularly. I think as well, something that's super important about the this parable of the Good Samaritan is that the, the Levite and the priest, you probably had somewhere to go, and they had a reason to not touch the person who was wounded and beaten on the side of the road. Uh, they, had, they had plans, they had expectations, they had people who counted on them. If they stopped, if a priest stopped and went down and, and touched a person wounded and touched their blood, that priest would become unclean. And so then he couldn't do his job. He couldn't go to the temple and make his sacrifices. He would have to go through a purification period where he would, he would be clean himself. He would go through his own quarantine, basically. Um, and so he knew that if he touched that person, that would deeply impact his life. And it's a similar thing to the Levite, that if he, if he stopped and helped that person on the side of the road who was wounded and bloody and in need, um, it, would, it would impact his life in a great degree because of his, his employment. And I think that that's so important because oftentimes, as I've heard it, and I don't know how it's been told here, but usually in my life, it's that, you know, like, oh, look at that uppity priest. Look at that uppity Levite. They see that wounded person. They could do that, but they don't stop. They are too full of themselves. When there's a way to read it and understand, they're quite rational in, in saying that. They're quite rational in being like, oh, it, you could easily imagine a situation where the Levite and the priest see a man wounded on the side of the road and like, gosh, I wish I could stop and help, but I can't. I, my, my family's counting on me. My wife and children are counting on me to do this. If I don't do this, I might lose my job. And I think it's so important because often enough, we kind of present the Good Samaritan as like, wouldn't it be nice to be Good Samaritans? You should all be Good Samaritans. There's a, a big nonprofit called Samaritan's Purse. Like, it's a lot of like, some places have Good Samaritan laws. The great, the last episode of the TV show Seinfeld hinged on a Good Samaritan law in a small town that you can't just sit around and watch while someone is being hurt. This like lifting up this good Samaritan, the person who was walking by and saw the wounded man on the side of the road and stopped and radically changed what he was doing in order to care for this person. But most of the time, you know, I'll, I'll confess myself first, most of the time I'm more like one of the priests and, and the Levites, and not because I work in a church and not because I'm a preacher, but because I think about Whenever I think about helping that person on the side of the road or helping the people in need, some of the first thoughts I have have to do with how is this going to impact my life? How is this going to impact my family? How is this in a, 
in a pros cons kind of way. How am I going to do this? And Jesus, Jesus says this, this parable rather swiftly. He's not being really wordy in this. Jesus gets right to the point. And it, it comes from this question of a neighbor. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And so we have this category of neighbor, this category that is filled for most of us by like who is next to us? Who are the people next to us? Who are the houses next to us? Who are the people we see in church? Who are the people we see on the golf course? Who are the people we interact with? Oftentimes, neighbor, for many people today, falls in what the, the anthropologist uh, Robin Dunbar called the, the Dunbar number, which the Dunbar number is about 150, and um, it was published in the mid-90s and became popular. The Dunbar, Dunbar's number became popular in Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point as, as this is the, the number of people that any one person can really know. And, and Dunbar, and I think his first article, he talks about the Dunbar number by imagining all the people whom you'd be willing to just like see, have dinner with out of the blue, and you'd be interested in doing that. Some of us probably have smaller Dunbar numbers, some of us have a little bigger, but I mean 150 is a good chunk of people. And, and Dunbar's argument has to do with our, our frontal cortex and the size of our brain, and other people have responded back and forth about whether or not it should be higher or lower, or it's obscene to even think about this. But, but when we think about neighbor, we, oftentimes it can be, who are the people I'm willing to talk to? Who are the people who, who I can have over to my house for dinner? Who are the people who I'm going to catch up with? Who are the people whose names I don't forget after a year? Jesus radically transforms this kind of category, this noun, neighbor, to a verb, to act neighborly, to neighbor to someone. This is, this is a really, it's often also times not touched that, that Jesus is responding to the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And he tells this story, and then he responds it, with a question himself. Which of these threes, which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who was robbed? The one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. For Jesus, being a neighbor is not about other people. It's about how we live our lives. Are we being neighbors. It's not about what other people are doing for us. It's not about whether someone brought us a chicken spaghetti last year, or, um, or if they water our lawn when we're out of town, or they, they could house sit our pets. That's not, it's not a transactional thing in that kind of way. Being a neighbor is about what we are willing to do for other people in our life. And like, like Dunbar's number, so often, we want to keep that circle small. In this passage in Luke 10, earlier in the passage, Jesus says, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Yea, Father, for such was your gracious will. Such was your will, O Lord you've hidden them from the wise and revealed them to children. And I think this is really important. It, this is not just a metaphor because kids, if you're around kids, most kids that I've ever experienced, when you go to a playground, kids want to play together. 
Now, of course, there are exceptions to the rule, but um, kids like playing together. When when a bunch of children meet at a playground, um, you know, let's just dream of a non-pandemic day and kids meeting at a playground or kids meeting at a pool. It doesn't take long for kids to click and have interactions and play, 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 play. And it doesn't matter about the color of their skin or where they live or what language they speak or um, or what their parents' job is. Like kids see each other and, and play together, offer time together, share together. And the older we get, the more, the more wise, the more wise we get, the harder it is to see another person and see in them someone whose joy we can share, someone who we can play with, whether or not that's, that's watching a game, having a drink, having a round of golf. Usually it has to go through a certain steps, steps of protocols before we're willing to, to accept them as someone to play with. But to the child, no. To the child sees another child and sees an opportunity of sharing joy with, of sharing life now there's, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for the wisdom of the world. There's a lot of reasons for um, suspicion about people we don't know. But I think it's so important for us to, to question those. Like, why am I pulling my child back from this? Why am I hesitant about this? Why is my circle like this? Why am I satisfied with my circle being like this? For the church, we can expand not only the circle of the people participating in the ministries of the church, but also, also the people in our community. As an ordained uh, elder in the United Methodist Church, I am appointed not specifically to the church, but to the mission field around the church. I'm appointed to the community and how we as the church, we as the people of, of Bee Creek United Methodist Church, we in our area can, can minister and serve and be neighbors and act neighborly and prove neighbor to the people around us, the people who may kind of get in the way of what we had otherwise wanted to do. We must always be on guard to make sure that we are not acting like, like the Levite or the priest and not acting as if whatever is going on in our world is the most important thing in the world and be willing to receive the, the Holy Spirit in surprising ways to kind of veer us off course. In this season, my brothers and sisters, we are all a little off kilter. Um, nobody's routine is the exact same as it was a year ago. And in this time, maybe, just maybe we can pray that the Holy Spirit will, will act afresh in us and we will be more open to receiving God's presence in this time to see our neighbors in a new way, but also to see our neighbors not just as instruments for our betterment, but as ways that we can love God. Luke 10 finishes with the story of Mary and Martha. And after, so after Jesus talks to this lawyer and they have this really good, nice lawyerly com conversation, I don't think there was a billable hour involved, but I think it was a good conversation. And then they go, he goes to the home of Mary and Martha. And this, this really brief passage is very famous in the history of the church and very famous in a lot of churches is like, you know, are you a Mary? Are you a Martha? 
Are you, you know, Martha, 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 are you the one behind the scenes in the kitchen doing all those things? Are you the one out at Jesus's feet? And usually in, um, you know, growing up for me, Martha was kind of seen as slightly negative, um, whereas Mary was seen as, as positive. But the context of Jesus's words do not hold one sister as negative and one sister as positive, but they're, they're both good, but one is a little better. Being at the, the feet of Jesus is, is the greater share. In the early church, uh, it was often seen as uh, the difference between contemplation and action, and Mary as the figure, as the type and symbol of, of contemplation, and Martha as the symbol of action. And you need contemplation and action together. You can't contemplate our Lord if you don't have food to eat, um, if someone's not cooking that food. So both work together. And I think it's so wonderful that this passage follows the Good Samaritan. It's like, how are we to be neighbors to people? I think by, by contemplation and by action. Like that's how we start right now. Contemplation as, an, as another type of prayer, of by, by spending time with, with Jesus, about taking the time with Jesus, of starting with, with five minutes, with just a little bit of extra prayer in our day. That's not the beginning of the day, the end of our day, and a meal, and another time to decide that I'm going to spend this time with God. And that may be like finding a prayer online. The Upper Room has a number of wonderful resources online, especially for the pandemic, that are, that are really great. It'd be wonderful to share with, share with you. But as well, just taking a time to, to breathe and to contemplate, find a scripture you love, maybe a, a Bible verse that you remember from your childhood to hold on to and to take that time with Jesus. And in that contemplation, we also are prepared for, for the action, for the preparations behind the scenes. And part of that in neighbor love and part of that in proving ourselves neighbor to others is preparing our lives so that it, they won't be so radically disrupted if we stop and care for someone. That, that we are ready for that. And this is one of the things that was missing with the Levite and the priest. It's not, you know, they didn't, the problem was what they didn't do before the trip. They weren't ready to stop and love the person on the side of the road. They, it would, it would interrupt what they were doing. It's, it's kind of like almost every sports ad that talks about the preparation for the big game and not the big game itself. Or whenever, you know, a ref blows a call at the end of the game that a lot of people will respond, well, you know, you shouldn't put yourself into the position where you need that call to win. And that's, the, I think, what we need to think about as individual Christians, as people, but also as a church. How can we prepare ourselves to stop and love our neighbor? How can we talk to our spouses and partners and children and, and physical neighbors about preparing our lives to be disrupted? How can we prepare as a church and plan for that? How can we participate with ministries that are already happening, like, like Helping Hands, that is this wonderful, uh, wonderful ministry that was started by, by members of the church, that the church continues to support, but is still in, is doing great things. How can we prepare ourselves for that? Prayer and action. Realizing that God is going to put people into our lives that are going to be in need. God will offer us the opportunity to love our neighbor. Can we be ready for that? Can we be ready to prove neighbor to someone? Can we be ready to show mercy? My brothers and sisters, I pray for you all in this season that God is mapping our future 
as we speak. We can participate in that future. We can either choose to live the old maps of our old habits, of the old things we did, or we can receive the opportunity that God is giving us this day and this season. We can receive it as a church to see our area in a new way. We can see it, receive it as individuals, as parents, as kids, as grandparents. God is offering us a new opportunity in this time, a new opportunity to plant gardens, to live our best life now, a new opportunity to love our neighbors, a new opportunity to show mercy, a new opportunity to expand our circle. May we accept it together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen.